0: From the conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day.
1: Jim Chalmers' first budget puts the fight against inflation as its number one priority. That means there was no scope to give households relief from the soaring power bills that the budget predicts. It's a budget that delivers on Labor's election promises, but it is also an interim budget. It signals that there are hard decisions ahead to cut spending and to raise more revenue, and they will come in later budgets. In this podcast, we speak to Treasurer Jim Chalmers Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor, and the head of the Grattan Institute, Danielle Wood. Jim Chalmers, what stands out for ordinary people in this budget is the big power price rises. And we've seen electricity is going up by 20% this financial year, 30% next financial year. It's broadly the same story for gas. Now, I know you don't want to preempt government decisions, but will the government take comprehensive action on power prices? And when can we expect to get decisions?
0: Well, thanks, Michelle. And um, first of all, uh, we have taken some steps. uh, And I pay tribute to the Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, for the way that he's worked collaboratively with his state and territory counterparts, because we've had some issues in energy markets really for the duration of the time that we've been in office, and he's made some progress, and in the budget, we found room to fund and empower our regulators, including the ACCC a bit more. You know about our efforts to get more renewable energy into the system, which in the long term is the only way to fix some of these challenges. Uh, But we are contemplating whether there's more we can do. Uh, These power prices uh, the way that they're increasing, they will sting and we would like to try and find a way to take some of the sting out of it. But we need to be realistic about that. We need to be careful and cautious about it and we need to collaborate uh, with states and territories to, to make sure that if there's anything that can be sensibly and responsibly done, obviously we'll consider that uh, and we've got more work to do on it.
1: And timing?
0: Oh Well, the work is already happening uh, and I think any responsible government... That gets the kind of electricity price forecast that I printed in the budget this week, takes that seriously and and considers its options. And for me personally, uh, something like this I think makes me consider probably a broader range of of options that I may have in years gone by. And but beyond that, I don't really want to narrow it or preempt it. Uh, it is principally the job of Chris Bowen, uh, but we will support him, other members of the cabinet as well, to see if we can do more.
1: Were you personally shocked when these numbers came through, when you were briefed on the trends?
0: Uh, I'm not sure about shock, but certainly, you know, they are impactful numbers. So of course they are. And they stand out in the budget. Of course they do. But when you've got a war in Ukraine, which is causing havoc on the global energy markets and pushing up our own electricity prices, and also when you remember that what Angus Taylor did during the election campaign was to hide the first of these big price increases, uh, then I think people know that the price of electricity is going up substantially and that's a bigger and bigger part of our inflation challenge.
1: On a very different front, the budget commits to a housing accord between governments, investors and industry to deliver 1 million houses over five years starting 2024. Just how will this work and what do you see as the role of the super funds in all this?
0: Yeah, crucial role for the super funds. Uh, What's motivating us here is really three things. The vacancy rates for rental properties are extremely low. Rents are high. And even when the economy is creating a heap of jobs, it's harder and harder for people to live near where the jobs are. And so... When you consider the magnitude of that problem, the best response to that is to bring together everyone who's involved in this market to see if we can do better. And so I'm proud of the work that Julie Collins and I have been able to do. We brought super in the states and territories and the building industry, and we've come up with this accord. And superannuation is absolutely central to it because we think for relatively low cost from a Commonwealth point of view, we can incentivize super to invest in a way in affordable housing, which gets a great return for their members but also satisfies one of our big national priorities, which is to build more homes.
1: Now, you've indicated very clearly in the budget that you think future budgets will need to curb spending and find ways to raise more revenue. On the spending side, the NDIS is headed in a decade to cost about $100 a year, which is enormous. You've already got a review of the scheme, but do you think that you can get that scheme back under control without a drastic reshaping of it?
0: Well, first of all, I think the the broader point where you started that question is right. You know, We need some combination of fiscal restraint, spending cuts, tax changes and targeted investments to get the budget on a more sustainable footing. And we started that work in the budget this week. We made good progress on each of those fronts. Uh, The NDIS is not the fastest growing area of government spending, that's actually the cost to service the trillion dollars of debt that we inherited from our predecessors, but it's up there. The NDIS is growing Uh, and we take that seriously. Part of that, and Bill Shorten deserves a lot of credit here, is cracking down on any rorting in the scheme, that's the first step. But we've also got this review from a couple of people who really know their stuff to make sure that we put people at the centre of the NDIS, that we're getting maximum value for money, Uh, We support the NDIS, we believe in it, we want to secure its future and part of doing that is making sure that it's sustainable.
1: Now on the tax side we have had a lot of debate about the stage 3 tax cuts but tax experts say that the main problem actually isn't income tax but uh, the balance in the tax system between income taxes, company taxes on the one side and a whole range of other taxes on the other. Why are you against a comprehensive inquiry into taxation as a preliminary to doing something? You're obviously going to do something at some stage.
0: Yeah, look, I'm not immediately attracted to another tax review. I've tried not to completely close off the option just because it's not unprecedented for cabinets and prime ministers to have a view about this, but our inclination is not to. And that's because what's different now in 2022 compared to uh, the first term of the Rudd government is that we think the issues are broadly known and understood. And
1: we should we should reference this, that the first term of the Rudd government had Henry. the hen review review, yeah. and you were a staffer to the then treasurer at the time.
0: Yeah, that's ringing a bell, Michelle. Um, and uh, I think that the issues are more broadly understood now than they were then and you know, one of the things I would like to do to help feed this conversation, which isn't a tax review, you know, is I'd like to think differently about the tax expenditure statement that we release, so that it's clearer, people can understand the trade-offs. I'd like to do the intergenerational report in a different way that shows the costs of uh, providing services and what kind of revenue we would need to satisfy that. The well-being budget is part of this story as well. So I'm trying to change the way we think and talk about the budget position and tax is part of that, but it's not the only part of it.
1: Now, just finally, obviously, framing this budget has been a very challenging exercise. But if you had to single out the most difficult part of it, what would you say? Is it the fact that it's such an uncertain environment? Mm -hmm. Is it that you can't give more help to people who are really struggling with cost of living or is it something else?
0: I think a version of that second one that you gave as an example, you know, I think By inclination, when times are tough, our instinct is to provide more support. Uh, But what we know is that if you uh, overdo it, we're providing some support, but if you overdo it, you risk making inflation worse. And inflation is genuinely public enemy number one. Uh, It is the the dragon that we need to slay. And you don't want to make it harder to do that by uh, making kind of indiscriminate payments. Uh, I think that's the lesson out of the UK in part. And so that has been hard uh, to, to show that restraint, particularly when we've had these revenue windfalls from higher commodity prices, that's been difficult. But I find it heartening. I mean, I, I know that you know, no budget ever gets released with kind of universal, unanimous support Uh, I think in the back of people's minds there is an understanding uh, that if you overdo it as a government, you can push inflation up and that pushes interest rates up and it makes a difficult situation worse than it might otherwise be. And we want to try and avoid that, and that's difficult.
1: Angus Taylor, if you were Treasurer, what would you be doing right now about these escalating power prices?
2: Well, I'm not Treasurer, Michelle, um, and the important point is Labor made a very clear commitment that they were going to reduce power prices by $275, um, and they've clearly walked away from that commitment in the budget. They've said that it's going to go up, they're going to go up 20% this year and an additional 30% the year after for a total of 56%, and that's a major breach of an election promise. Now, we did see a very significant reduction in power prices when we were in power, when I was energy minister. We, we reduced household prices by 8% and small businesses and industry saw even larger reductions. And the key to that is getting more supply into the market. The, the challenge isn't uh, renewable supply. There's a huge amount of renewable supply that's been coming into the market, record levels. We've got the highest level of household solar in the world, and we've had very, very high levels of large-scale renewable investment as well. The challenge is to make sure we're getting dispatchable generation in, and that's why we backed in projects like the Curry Curry Gas Generator, Energy Australia's project, and the Talawarra Gas Project, and the Talawarra uh, Snowy, of course, as well as other major projects around the country. But that's what's needed. Now, the, the most important mechanism to achieve that is the capacity mechanism, which again, we did the work on it. ESB has recommended it. Labor needs to get on with it. Again, they're showing no enthusiasm for this. It's supply, supply, supply. And, and that we know uh, it's economics 101. It's more supply brings down prices.
1: Now, you've criticised the budget, but given the high inflation and the Reserve Bank's move to curb inflation, aren't the fiscal settings about right?
2: No, I don't agree with that. There's $115 billion of additional spending in this budget, $115 billion additional spending versus the March budget over the next four years. We also see deficits that are increasing, starting at $32 billion for the year just past, just over $32 billion, rising to $51 billion in the next couple of years. So we've got a deteriorating deficit. We've got a sharp increase in spending. And that's not what's needed in an inflationary environment. What we do need is a responsible budget and one that then can put downward pressure on inflation and on interest rates. At the end of the day, you need fiscal policy and monetary policy working together. That's essential at a time like this. And uh, the best way to do that is to make sure it is very responsible fiscal policy. But on any reasonable measure, that's not what we've seen from the Treasurer in this budget.
1: Given what you're saying, are you surprised that business has been relatively uh, praiseworthy accepting of this budget?
2: Well, I think, I think there's a lot of business people I speak to, whether they say it privately or not, who are deeply concerned that this budget is a pathway to higher taxes. And I think that's the real risk here is that Labor is setting itself up to do what it always likes to do, which is to tax more. Now, there's significant increases in tax in this budget, by the way, well over a billion dollars additional taxation as well. But there's a placeholder here to get rid of the stage three tax cuts. Labor knows that with inflation, you get bracket creep, and that means you can get continually rising rates of taxation and uh, we think that's a bad idea, which is why the Stage 3 tax cuts are so important. They take out a bracket. That's the best way to deal with bracket creep. Labor, on the other hand, are more than happy uh, to see tax rates rising, and if you can do that through bracket creep, all well and good. So for them to see the end of the Stage 3 tax cuts, I get a very strong sense that's what they want to do. Jim Chalmers floated that kite. There's clearly a placeholder, and most importantly, the, the budget, Uh, makes almost no mention of the Stage 3 tax cuts. Uh, There's no celebration of the fact that the vast majority of Australians will be able to keep at least 70 cents per dollar in their pockets, that there'll be incentives there for them to invest, to build careers, to take risks, and that will encourage growth over time. That's just completely absent from the budget, which only leads me to believe that this is a budget for higher taxes.
1: Well, do you think that there's any case for reform of any part of the tax system in the coming years, or do you reject the need for the system to be recalibrated in some fashion to get more revenue? I'm talking about the whole tax system here, not stage three.
2: Well, I mean, I I firmly believe that there's a strong case for reform through lower taxes and through taking out a bracket and encouraging Australians to get out there, go hard, have a crack, build businesses, build careers, and in the process, across a broad sweep of tax brackets, keep 70 cents in the dollar. I mean, that's my very strong belief. You you asked about the spending side. I mean, if, if you can achieve strong economic growth, then that is the best way to pay for the services Australians want and deserve, and as long as your economic growth is stronger than your spending growth, then your budget is always improving.
1: Danielle Wood, how sound is this budget in economic terms?
3: I think the government has done a reasonably good job at walking a difficult line, given the current economic and fiscal circumstances uh, what I look to is the fact that uh, the, the revenue position is actually very strong over, particularly the next two years, and overall the sort of economic good news is netting about 50 billion to the budget bottom line over four years. Only about 10 billion of that is going out the door in in new policies, so they've been reasonably constrained. Uh, that's important because in the current economic environment where we're actually struggling with high inflation and, and demand which is very strong. We obviously don't want the government putting too much in in terms of new policies, and it's certainly not doing that particularly in the next couple of years. Uh, but it's also important for the fiscal position. And, and certainly the very sobering aspect of this budget for me was the, the sort of 10-year um, budget numbers, which suggests that we have some pretty big structural challenges to grapple with. So I think it was a good start. I think they have sort of pushed that line quite heavily about spending restraint, but you know there are still, you know, pretty sizable and challenging decisions to come. The inflation
1: number for the September quarter has come out after the budget, and it's a very hefty 7.3%. And yet the Treasurer is sticking by the budget forecast that inflation will peak in the December quarter at 7.75%. Is this realistic or could it go above 8%?
3: It could certainly go higher. And the that sort of pattern, both in Australia and around the world, is continual surprises on the upside. Uh, certainly, you know, we thought that it would perhaps peak peak lower and, and sooner than we are now expecting. Uh, so, look, I don't necessarily think that the treasurer has to throw out those, those budget numbers. They they are in you know the bounds of plausible outcomes, uh, but there is certainly scope for for further and unwanted surprises on the upside, including a number above eight.
1: Now, you spoke about the structural challenges uh, looking into the medium term. Should the government have been more ambitious on the reform front in this budget rather than waiting for later?
3: Look, I'm pretty forgiving on this front, Michelle, just in that I would say that the things that are going to make a big difference, and ultimately we're going to be talking about reforms on both the spending and the revenue side of the budget, are things that you actually have to spend a bit of time to do well. Um, So if you are going to, you know, really constrain spending on something like the NDIS or Defence or Health, um, or if you're going to, you know, make tax changes that are going to net revenue, i.e. increase the tax burden on people, um, they're not the kind of changes I think you can roll out within a few months of taking office. So I, I think the approach is right um, that, you know, the conversation has become a bit of bit trite as a term now, uh, but you do have to sort of till the ground, explain to people why changes are necessary and build community support. I think if you are going to do major reforms. So I think the sort of trajectory we are on is the right one. And I'm not going to be too critical that they haven't done really big, hard things in, in this first budget a few months after taking office.
1: You've favoured changing the Stage 3 tax cuts, but do you think other major uh, tax changes should be made and should they be made in the May budget or should the government take a package to the next election?
3: So I think there there is some potential actually to make tax reform as part of a package with the Stage 3 tax cuts. So if we think that the Stage 3 tax cuts are about cutting tax rates and changing tax brackets... You know, I think there are there's genuine reform to be made in terms of addressing leakages to our income tax base. Uh, so at the moment, you know, the well-advised can significantly reduce their income tax burden through things like um, concessional superannuation, uh, negative gearing, and the capital gains tax discount, family trusts. Uh, I think you could package that together with with the tax cuts in a way that would significantly reduce the fiscal cost of that package. Uh, It would be a a more fair change to the the system uh, and and genuinely would improve the the, the way the tax system functions over time. Uh, So that is one thing I think that they could do this term. Uh, It would be politically challenging, but I I think you you could really make the case for that. Uh, If we think about other significant tax changes, Often the the GST and increasing the rate or broadening the base of that will come up as an option. I think you could only do that by taking it to an election. I think that is um, such a substantial change that you would really have to put that to the people.
1: And the treasurer rather recoils when anyone suggests that that should be done.
3: The the GST changed, I must say. I I, I agree. I think um, you know the the strong signal is that Labor just doesn't have an appetite to go there uh you know i think that's a shame but it for whatever reason it it's sort of an untouchable for them uh but there are a lot of other sensible tax changes that are on the table that they they can look at
1: Just finally, the budget measures uh, include, of course, more support for childcare, which was an election promise, and extending paid parental leave, which was recently announced. They're aimed in part at boosting women's participation. Will they make a major difference to that level of female participation, or will it be a more marginal one?
3: I think when you when you think about level of difference, you have to think about it in terms of the scale of the budget measures. Um so the, the childcare changes are pretty significant, just under five billion over the forward estimates. They will substantially sharpen or improve financial returns to work for second earners who tend to be women, the ones that are that are flexing their hours to deal with work and care. Um, So our our estimates suggest, Michelle, that they could produce about an 8% increase in in workforce participation amongst that group of of second earners with younger children. I think the the Treasury numbers put it at about um, 1.4 million work hours per week. Uh, That's pretty close to where we come out as well. Uh, And just to give you a sense, that's about a sort of a two to one uh, return on investment uh, in terms of the, the GDP impact for the dollars spent. So it is, it's sizeable. it's sizable, certainly a um, big economic kicker uh, compared to a lot of other things that you might invest the money in. Uh, the parental leave changes are, are really about a kind of longer term shift, um, which is about trying to get dads more involved in the early years of care. So, you know, particularly the use it or lose it portion Uh, we know from the overseas experience that when you create that you have dads more likely to take time off in in that first year of the child's life and when they get more involved in year one they tend to stay more involved and that does change the way work and care is shared within couples and provides more scope for women to participate in the paid workforce Uh, that's a bit of a slower burn uh, but potentially I think um, really significant shift for the country over time. That's all from our budget
1: podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now.
0: Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.